it always goes back to resilience. You know, I, I think we've all done things in life when you get to the point where you question, is this really what I want to do? I think back to going to selection for special forces. There was a point at which it became so difficult that I learned something about myself. I had to ask myself, am I willing to continue to fight and push to achieve this? That's Brian Decker, Director of Team Development in the NFL for the Indianapolis Colts and former Army Special Forces. He joined us to share lessons gained from his experience in team development, which comes from the unique combination of the military and NFL. Our conversation with Brian will be a two-part special, so it may feel a little bit different because Brian gave us a lot to unpack. In the first part, we're digging into resilience. When it comes to sales, having the ability to withstand rejection and keep a strong mental fortitude is crucial. After this conversation, you may walk away with a new meaning or understanding of what resilience really is. I'm Kylie Schmitz. I'm Dan Lappin, and this is Breaking Sales, a nonconformist take on rejecting the sales status quo. Join the Lappin 180 team as we break the tried and died sales tactics and techniques that are failing you and your prospects. Do you believe resiliency is a combination of things? Is it, is it behavior? Is it, you know, the character? Is it um, nature, nurture? There is a nature and a nurture component to it. I do believe there are some people that have been born with traits that predispose them to be naturally resilient. However, the type of resilience that we're talking about there is not the type required to get you to the NFL or to get you through special forces or to make you the leader of a sales team. So nature will give you the foundation of it. We have to nurture or develop that capacity and build upon that. Dan, Brian had mentioned this nature versus nurture, state versus trait resilience. Can you clear that up for me and our listeners and just tie this back to sales? How does it apply to us in our sales roles? I had never thought about resilience in terms of state versus trait, and it makes complete sense you know, your trait resiliency, you're hardwired that way. There's just certain things in life that you might be more resilient than others. In sales, for some of you, you're more resilient by nature, all right, not nurture, just by nature on prospecting. Risk rejection doesn't bother you. But for others, you have to nurture yourself through effort and through mindset and through practice to become more resilient when it comes to prospecting. I mean, the same can be said for asking meaningful questions, for negotiating price or negotiating other terms. I think all of us have different traits when it comes to resilience and different states when it comes to resilience. And I think as a direct correlation with how you perform in certain aspects of sales. So with that context, let's jump into the conversation, starting with Brian sharing how his special forces training equipped him in understanding what resilience really is. I was the commander of a school called SEER, Survive, Evade, Resist, and Escape. 
And it's designed to train special forces soldiers to give them the skills necessary to survive should they be isolated behind enemy lines. And many of the skills, your core sets of skills that you use on a daily basis, they're inadequate for that situation. So in a three-week course, we put them through a bunch of education and practical exercises, and then we take them out and we make them so uncomfortable. We take them to a place that they cannot get to on their own. And we teach them how to utilize those skills in that situation so that should they ever be in that situation, they continue to look for options. And what's underlying all of that training is called stress inoculation. It's almost like being vaccinated to stress. And I think that's why those who are resilient have a history of having overcome. They become inoculated or vaccinated against stress. In that situation, they look for options. They, they understand the value of effort and persistence. They continue to grow. They see it as an opportunity because every time they cross one of those mountains, they become hardier and, and they have a lot more resilience. There's a great book I think everyone should read who's a parent who is responsible for developing people to be adults, and it's called The Gift of Failure. And I'm sorry that I don't know the author's name, but I, I, as, I, as I recall, she's the former dean of admissions for Stanford. And the one thing that she says in there is that to go on to go to one of these top 10 schools in the United States, that we have to put these kids on a track where they and, they, and they never fail. They never fail. They're afforded the best resources, the best opportunities. And if I recall her thesis correct, she believes that the farther you go right in life without failing, the more difficult it is going to be to overcome. You haven't de necessarily developed the capacity for resilience, the ability to bounce back, to create a cycle of learning as a result of that, to create this, what, what we like to call post-traumatic growth. And they're more likely to see that a judge is a judgment in who they are. And I think we need to, for our children, for our employees, for our players, we need to put them in challenging situations. They need to get to the point where it, they're extremely uncomfortable to develop a new norm. Our failures can often be because of the environment that we're in. So it's not things that we can control. But being able to survive those failures um, not only makes us who we are, but also is an indicator still of who we can become because we've survived the failures. We've shown the ability to handle adversity. I think that would be a good assumption. But if I was process tracing someone's timeline, I would go back to those very difficult times and I'm looking for three things. What was the situation? What were your actions? And what were the results? You know, situation, action, results. You know, I'm looking for that learning. I'm looking for the growth. Sometimes people just outlast problems or the problem goes away. The, the, the reason why I bring it up, and we talk about it here um, a lot, is that we really like to coach um, the people that we coach to learn how to bet on themselves. And the more failure or adversity someone has, if they overcome it, that gives them the tools to learn how to bet on themselves. Yeah. But I also know in business, Brian, there's not 
a lot of really disciplined processes or deliberate processes to teach someone to bet on themselves. The military and the NFL, they have some of those processes. Like they've deliberately said, here's how we're gonna train so that the stress that you feel now is far greater than the stress you're gonna feel when it actually comes time for game time or whatever it is. I think you have to get comfortable in those situations. If you think about every career field, those who go on to be the greatest, they've just passed through a series of gates, right? And every time the population is getting necked down more and more, right? And so it, it, it continues, those who continue to go farther, it favors certain traits. And I think those, one of probably the top trait in that is going to be resilient, just by virtue of the path being difficult. I think we should, we should just go back and strike the word failure from our lexicon. We, we shouldn't even say it. Well, I don't, what makes you say I, that? I, I don't like the word failure because you don't fail. You only fail if you don't capture the learning that comes from that event. I, I will say this, and a lot of people, this, this is probably not going to be popular with a lot of people. It's a concern when I'm talking to somebody and, and we get onto motivation and they say they're motivated by the fear of failure. That's, that's a red flag. And the reason why I say that is just because understanding how development happens. We only get better when we're challenging the boundaries of our ability. It's our body's need to achieve homeostasis and adapt to that demand that gives us the greater capacity to handle big, you know, greater problems on down the line. So that person who's afraid to fail, they're going to steer clear of difficult situations. And, and maybe in good times when you're in an economic boom or, you know, you're exceedingly talented on this team, or maybe that works for you. But those who go on to separate themselves can continue to stay uncomfortable. They continue to go back to that edge. And they're not afraid of, quote, unquote, failure. They just see it as being uncomfortable. So when I think about that, and I might be thinking about it incorrectly, if someone's going to stretch themselves, say in sales, and they're dealing with a certain level of prospect and client, but they want to go up market, they want to start calling on bigger prospects with bigger problems and, and more challenges, they do need to stretch themselves. But the fear of failure to me might indicate that because they want to do well, they prep more. So that as they're pushing themselves to go up market, that fear of failure causes them to put more prep, more time, and more effort into being ready. That's the argument that I hear commonly to that. And I still say framing something, a win or a failure, is an outcome type of thinking. It lends itself to judgment. It lends itself to importance. It raises two of the verticals in our pressure model versus the person who sees that threat, not a threat, they don't see that challenge as a threat, they see that as an opportunity to grow and get better. Before you execute anything, you should already be prepared to understand how you're going to evaluate that. Because win or lose going into that situation, you need to know what you did right and in the areas in which you can improve. I, that's one of the things I struggle with when people who are too focused on the outcomes is that if you're only focused on the outcomes, do you really put 
the systems and the thinking into place to capture the learning that allows each iteration to, to inform the next? Or do you begin to think you're good? Do you begin to just to have like a little bit of arrogance? Because to me, great organizations are learning organizations. They're playing the long game. Their time horizon is longer. They don't see any competition as just one game. It's a series of games. And although we want to win all of them, what's most important is to being able to continue to play the game. If I'm one of my listeners right now, I'm putting myself in their shoes. I'm very intrigued, A, by what you're saying, but I'm also perplexed because I'm thinking, I hear what Brian's saying, let go of the outcome. And it makes sense because the second we have expectations for ourselves, we add complexity of importance, being judged and critiqued if we don't hit that outcome, uncertainty about hitting the outcome. But I'm thinking, yeah, but I, I want to go up market. I want to get better. I want to be more successful in what I'm doing if it's in sales. And so I do need to stretch myself. But how do I know along the way I'm being successful if I can't tie something to an outcome? You could be going into a field where you're extremely comfortable. You're, extreme, you're, you're very well established in this field. You developed the plan, the great plan. You, had, you assumed success, but you accounted for struggles along the way. You had a great plan. You'd visualize. You'd done everything. You had done everything right. But for whatever reason, you were unable to make the sale. And that happens. Did you fail? If you attach to the outcome, yeah. If, you, if you're process thinking, if you're process oriented and you're principle based, you didn't fail because if you did everything you could do to set the conditions for success, but things outside of your controls caused you to in that moment fail, then I still think you succeed. I agree with what you're saying, but I want to add another caveat just to see where this goes. The challenge could be, I want to hear your thoughts. I did exactly what you said in the instance, right? I prepared, I prepared hard. I caused myself um, that stress in my preparation so that I'd be ready for whatever was thrown at me on that sales call. And I go in and some of that pressure that I put on myself paid off where I did get curveballs and I was ready because I prepped and had a strong meeting and then ended up having a strong series of meetings with that prospect. They came to decision time and I didn't win. I agree. I leave there knowing that I'm better but then I've got a boss that might say, hey, you lost another one. You're 0 for 4. You got to get the numbers up. You got to get things going. That's a caveat. So I'm going to use an education example to kind of ex display my thinking on this. Growing up, you take a kid who loves to learn. They, they love to read. They're reading all the time. They're constantly consuming inf information. Then let's say it's, it's ninth grade, you know, English or literature class. 
and there is a there is a report or there's something associated with a reading assignment and they get a grade that was a little less than what people around them expected. And so the parent says, hey, a 90 is a B plus. That's not good enough for our family. Now you just shifted a kid who had an intrinsic love of what they do, reading, learning, and you've now shifted them into the outcome. They have, you have immediately focused them on the outcome. So now, playing the long game, the next iteration of this same game, instead of this intrinsic love of the activity and doing it to get better, they're going to be focused on the outcomes. So now, the judgment and the importance vertical are going to go higher. Anytime we are, you're on a sales call or we're on a mission or we're playing a game, Winning is everything that day and that we, we go there to win, but we believe the game, we believe the mission is won or lost well before you ever go onto the field because it's the process. So how I interpreted what you just said, which I thought was, was great, I put sales leadership or the owner of the company in the role of the parent in what you just said. Because I, you're absolutely right. We've all experienced that. You work really, really hard. You try to get a good grade. And maybe you're used to getting a C plus in the class. And all of a sudden, you get a B. And for you, that feels great because you had to go through the process of the extra work and the commitment and the discipline. But then you go home and your parent says, B is not good enough still. You should be an A. You just made the whole process judged and critiqued about the outcome. As a sales leader, right? A sales leader needs to be careful of that too, it sounds like, where you know, you have to learn to observe, listen, understand what did the salesperson go through and how did they push themselves to achieve the win. Even if they didn't achieve it, it doesn't necessarily mean you condemn them for that. It's probably more of a victory as long as they're learning from it and they're getting better for the next time. Absolutely. The greatest coaching and leadership tool that we have at our disposal is a question. It's a question. And ultimately, what we want to do is we want to create self-sufficient operators. We want to create self-sufficient players. We want to create self-sufficient employees, those who can coach themselves. So for me, it's very important, and we talk to our coaches about this, the language of a process culture is to not give them answers, but to ask them questions. It's the Socratic method of questioning, where the teacher or the leader claims ignorance, asks questions until the person discovers the error in judgment, thought, or whatever that attributed to that. You do that with an employee, you do that with a kid, you do that with a player enough. Four or five times that you go through this review process, he knows he threw an interception. He knows he fumbled the ball. Do you want to say, like, what are you doing? Why did you fail on that sales call? Oh, I, I was trying. I was trying. They, they know that. Ask them questions. And then what happens after about the fifth time, when you, whenever they come to you, they will have gone through that process in their mind and they will tell you what they did wrong. Now they're coaching themselves. 
And to me, that's that. But now you're teaching somebody how to think versus what to think. So Brian, as I'm thinking in my head, resilience is built by struggling previously and being able to apply what you learn from those struggles into this new situation that may be a challenge. In a way, are those struggles and that resilience preparing you for what's to come? I think when you combine those all together, what you're talking about is creating cycles of learning where you're able to grow from every experience, both good and bad. You're becoming better as a result of that, increasing your capacity, which creates resilience. But to me, the one thing that people who are rapid adapters who grow very fast is they, they learn, they're able to extract the most amount of learning from their experiences. And really, they learn the most from those negative experiences. There's a problem with negative experiences. One person looks at that as an opportunity. They structure it such that they learn. Another person sees that as a hot stove. And so what they do in the future is they just don't touch it because it's a hot stove. The other person looks beyond that and they look for opportunities to grow. So to me, I don't think you can handle adversity. I don't think you can be resilient if you're not prepared. What skill is that that makes the difference between somebody who sees it as an opportunity versus somebody who sees it as a challenge they don't want to deal with? I think it's really, it's a mindset. If you read Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, she talks about this growth mindset versus this fixed mindset. Well, those who are going to see this as an opportunity, they're going to have a growth mindset. They're seeing this as the opportunity. The person with the fixed mindset is going to see this as a judgment or a referendum on who they are or where they're at. So, Two people, similar skill, same situation, they're going to have different takeaways from that. One is more likely to take on something more difficult in the future and do so by being better prepared. Another one may begin to avoid that because they didn't like the way that felt. Because negative emotions are very, very powerful. It's how we survive by taking our experiences and allowing our experiences to, to inform future iterations of that. It's a survival mechanism. And those negative experiences are the ones that are most powerful. So if you think about in that moment, do you want to go back to that negative experience and see that as a tiger? Or do you want to have overwritten that with good, solid learning? I think two people in the same situation, one will see it, hey, it's a tiger, so it invokes this fight or flight response. Another person sees it as an opportunity, then they're playing it more from that steady state, their normal state. How much of the way people look at challenge and, and develop their growth mindset do you think is impacted by the feedback that they've received throughout the years? I think you can take someone who has a growth mindset, who is really focused on the input, the process, the effort, the learning, and if the feedback in their environment is always talking to them about the outcome, you will shift them to a fixed mindset. You know, so I think that's if you want to create a resilient organization, um, you want to play the long game. I think that's one of the things we struggle with in society. I think that's one of the reasons why the, the, the length of businesses is getting shorter is because there's so much pressure to 
provide results in the next quarter, in the next quarter, or the next sell call, or what it, and what we're doing is we're optimizing in the present in lieu of the future. We might be a better organization if we were optimized on a, on a longer timeline. As leaders, it is very important to create an environment that's aligned with your vision and your strategy to achieve it. And for us, we're big on everything about being about the process, those things which we can control. Every day, every one of us has an opportunity in some way or form to get better. I promise you. And that's what you need to be able to do at night is when you go to bed, don't grade yourself on the goal. Grade yourself on your approach to achieving it. And then if you don't like what you're getting, improve that goal. I'm not saying do the same thing and get the same outcomes over, you know, over time. That's, that's the definition of insanity. You know, every time you do something, learn from that, adjust your process, back up, reassess, attack your target from a different angle. All right, Dan, what do you think our listeners need to understand about resilience? Given the fact that I'm in sales and I've been in sales for 25 to 30 years and our listeners are in sales, the thing I take away the most from our conversation and time with Brian Decker is preparation. It's Preparation is the link between resilience and the link between what we like to call flow, that conversational flow, like an athlete where they always talk about how in the clutch moments, in the heat of the battle, whether it's on the court, on the ice, or on the field, that athlete that has that experience where everything just slows down for them. And what I took away from Brian is that the reason why everything slows down in the heat of the moment, no matter what the pressure is, it's because of the preparation. So when I think back on the connectivity and what Brian talked about, Preparation is number one. It helps your resilience, it helps your confidence, and it helps you get in that state of flow so that no matter what that prospect throws at you, you can perform conversationally in the moment, in the clutch. Dan, what do you think makes the difference in the heat of the moment or when when they have to be clutch? You have to have a particular mindset if you want to try to get in the flow. Okay. I think I'm understanding all of this. It takes a growth mindset to help you develop resilience. In developing that resilience, that's the the key component to getting into flow. In talking with Brian, my takeaways were, number one, preparation is key to flow. Number two, the ability to visualize what's going to happen in the conversation is key to flow. And three, like we always talk about at Lapa 180, you have to have a specific mindset to even start the process of trying to get into that flow state. And that flow state is so important because the flow state is what allows you as a sales professional to be able to handle any scenario that that prospect can throw at you and perform in the clutch. All right, Dan, I have to stop you there. No spoilers. We're going to talk more about flow and preparation 
next episode. Thanks for listening to Breaking Sales. If you want to get engaged with us outside of this podcast, be sure to go to our website, lapin180.com. That's lappin one eight zero dot com. And there you'll find information on upcoming workshops, different events we're doing throughout the United States, ways to engage with us on social media, as well as a form where you can suggest topics or guests for the podcast. We want to hear from you, so don't be shy. Kylie out. All right. Do we have another episode?